Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 202 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, we talk about what for many people is the on-ramp to distilled booze and mixed drinks, that lovely liquid we call beer. Our guide is James Beard award-winning brewer Sam Caligioni, founder of Dogfish Head Brewery. They're headquartered in beautiful coastal Delaware, but you can find their beers on shelves and in tap rooms across the country. Every once in a while, you know I like to take a break from the hard stuff and the mixed stuff to return to our roots in the fermented beverage world so that we can get a fuller view of what's happening in the drink space as a whole, and in this conversation, we do just that. But before we start crushing brewskis, exploring the wonderful world of continually hopped ales and thumbing our noses at German beer purity laws, let's take a moment so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Arrowhead Limited. Developed by bartender Damon Bolte of the New York Bar Grand Army, this delicious drink pairs mezcal and bitter aromatized ingredients with a hoppy IPA to achieve crisp, delicious perfection. To make the Arrowhead Limited, you'll need one half ounce mezcal, one half ounce Campari, one ounce Carpano Antica Vermouth, and three to four ounces of your favorite IPA. Something like, oh, I don't know, maybe a Dogfish Head 60-minute IPA. In a large highball glass or pint glass with ice, combine all your liquid ingredients, making sure to add the beer last. Then give the drink a quick, gentle stir with a straw, garnish with a grapefruit slice, and enjoy. One thing I like about the Arrowhead Limited is that it bucks the current, almost ubiquitous trend of beer tails being relegated to the session drink category. Don't get me wrong, I love a good session beer. Sam and I talk about that later in the interview. But if that's the only way we think about beer in the cocktail space, we're very much imposing a limit on our own creativity. Is it tempting to just put a shot of Campari in your beer? making something referred to alternately as a hobo negroni or spaghetti? Absolutely. I love a shot of Campari in my beer. But Damon Bolte's boozier, more complex approach to the cerveza con aperitivo format begs the simple yet universal question, what if a mezcal negroni and a beer had a baby and you drank it? So now that you've got yourself a crisp and refreshingly bitter cocktail in hand, to accompany you on our hoppy journey, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this conversation with Dogfish Head Brewery founder Sam Caligioni, some of the topics we discuss include how Sam took his creativity from the writer's workshop to the brewery, scaling Dogfish Head from the smallest commercial brewery in America to a top 20 craft brand over the course of two decades. What it means to make off-centered ales for off-centered people, which requires us to travel back in time over 500 years to the publication of the Rheinheitsgebot, Bavaria's infamous beer purity law. How Sam invented the practice of continual hopping using a vibrating football game that now resides in the Smithsonian Museum. Why Dogfish Head's acquisition by the Boston Beer Company was like the merging of kindred yet complementary souls, what the future holds for Sam and his beer, including tropical fruit farming in South Florida, art and music collaborations, and much, much more. The nucleus of this conversation is about how to scale creativity. It's something I've always admired in the beers that I've enjoyed from this brand, and to be completely honest, it's usually something that gets swept under the rug and sacrificed for profit when a brewery or distillery gets as big as Dogfish Head has grown to be. I hope you have as much fun as I did listening to Sam's story and learning from his innovative approach to beer. So without further ado, please 
crack a cold one, and enjoy this off-centered conversation with Dogfish Head founder, Sam Caligioni. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Psyched to be here, Eric. Thanks for inviting me. So before we jump in to all that is Dogfish Head, can you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Who are you and what do you do? Sure. My name is Sam Caligioni, and I'm the brewer and founder of Dogfish Head. And we opened in 1995 with the dubious distinction of being the smallest commercial brewery in the country at that moment. But we had a, a bold raison d'etre, which was to be the first craft brewery in America committed to brewing the majority of our recipes, incorporating culinary ingredients in addition to the traditional water, yeast, hops, and barley. I know your show goes deep and wide on all things bar related. So I'm also proud to say we were one of the first craft distilleries in America. We opened our brewery 26 years ago, but we started making our own gins, rums, vodkas, brandies from scratch uh, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So lots to talk about then. I, I love that you dropped that raison d'etre name because I, I think that might even be a, a beer that we return to here in a little bit. But uh, I'd, I'd love to give you one piece of information about me mm-hmm. and then maybe have you tell us a little bit of the backstory about how Dogfish Head came to be. And the, the one little factoid I will drop is yeah. that uh, I actually have my MFA in poetry. Oh, and, wow. So knowing that, uh, can you tell us a little bit of, of where you were and what you were doing when the idea to start Dogfish Head kind of struck you? Yeah, well, props to you in getting your MFA because that dovetails with my, <laughs> my, my failure to launch, which is I graduated from a little school in uh, Pennsylvania called Muhlenberg College, Division Three. I played some hockey and football there until I ripped my shoulders up. Uh, and the day after I graduated, I was an English major at this tiny little Division Three school with a focus on creative writing. And I just loved storytelling. And then I moved to New York City the day after I graduated, started taking classes in Columbia's graduate writing program with a goal of fully enrolling in their MFA program. But I wanted to just take a few classes to see, get a vibe and to earn my class money and my, my rent money for my apartment on the Upper West Side. I worked at a bar on 111th and Broadway. Without knowing it, I just walked in and applied and it turned out to be a first generation craft beer bar called Nacho Mama's Burritos. Doesn't sound like hardcore beer bar, but the owner was only like four or five years older than me. It was way into beer. And up until then, I just drank the shitty cheap beer that every college and high school kid can find. And But then, you know, working there, I got to try Chimay Red and Sierra Nevada Celebration. Sam Lager, Oktoberfest. And so I was talking and, and selling these beers at night and then taking these courses in the day at Columbia. And I could see that I was a good writer, but I wasn't a world-class writer when I was in that room with those world-class MFA students. And I was like, you know what, maybe I should pivot and apply my love of storytelling to try and make the great sort of American beer instead of trying to write the great American uh, novel. So I quickly pivoted gave up those classes and started going to the New York City Public Library and doing Lexis Nexus searches, you know, on the eve of the internet sort of about other trends that I thought I could find a niche in the, in the beer world. So I was studying the world, the work of Alice Waters and the work of uh, James Beard, very similar messages from different coasts, which is America should stop genuflecting towards Europe. We grow beautiful ingredients here in America. Let's create our own culinary traditions. And and I said, that will be kind of my template for a brewery is I'm not going to bow to modern European beer styles. I'm going to come up with our own styles using, you know, culinary ingredients. Yeah. In a video that I watched in preparation for this, I, I remember you referencing the the German beer quality standards, the Rheinheitsgebot, and, and having that be sort of one of the the reference points where you decided to depart from, right? It's this quality standard saying that we can only use these couple ingredients in beer. And then you kind of took that as a way to say, okay, how can we differentiate ourselves knowing that this is the way that beer has been made in Europe, you know, where they sort of look down their noses across the pond at us. And that was sort of a point of departure from you. How did you then go about kind of creating your recipes and uh, and, and building the, the early version of what Dogfish Head was? Yeah, and so it really, it, it came with having that kind of, call the Reinheitsgebot, kind of the thing that we were standing up against 
And so it was the Bavarian Beer Purity Act of 1516, where the government basically mandated you could only make beer with water, barley, and hops. Louis Pasteur had yet to be, you know, come around. So they didn't understand yeast and its role, but it was kind of a given. And what's interesting is within centuries of the invention of that rule, the, the globally, the commercial beer landscape became really monochromatic and industrialized. And essentially, that's a war the Bavarians won. They redefined beer for the globe uh, as a result of, of coming up with this Rheinheitsgebot. And yet I always refer to the Rheinheitsgebot as a relatively modern form of art censorship because human beings have been brewing beer for 10,000 years. And this is a law that's only 500 years young. And so when you think of a pre-internet world or even a pre-mailing like world, every culture, almost every culture in every corner of the world had the ingenuity to figure out how to make alcoholic beverages. And they were not hamstrung by, oh, it has to be these ingredients. They just said, hey, here's the beautiful, natural, indigenous ingredients that grow under the part of the world that I live in. I'm going to make this awesome liquid that makes me feel closer to my loved ones and closer to the gods and my ancestors, etc. And it's pretty cool that that thing popped globally, but locally. And that's kind of the movement that craft has brought back into this world is it's a global uh, phenomena, but it's got all this great distinction uh, with local influence. And, uh, you know, you mentioned it where, you know, 40, 50 years ago, America was the laughing stock of the international beer community because of our, you know, industrial light lagers were so samey. And yet it's ironic that in the last 25 years, it's been the American craft brewers and their fearless creativity that have inspired similar renaissances of great beer in countries like Italy, like Japan, like New Zealand, like Brazil. And these countries, though, are, are flipping the script and saying, well, here's the thing that grows in the outback that I'm putting into my local beer. or Here's the thing that grows, you know, uh, in the jungle that I'm putting into my beer. So it's just cool to see that America has been this touchstone for bringing vibrancy back into beer when we were for too long recognized as the ones that kind of destroyed the, the, the diversity of beer. It reminds me a lot of what's happening in the gin landscape or has been happening in the gin landscape over the past five or so years where everyone's just taking these local botanicals and saying like, listen, yeah, is gin a spirit that's fairly neutral infused with juniper and some other stuff? Yeah, but you know, we're going to go and make this our own by making it local. And so I, I, I do think that the U.S. is a really kind of a, a leader in the, the craft beer movement, like you said. And I think some of that has to do with the creative use of hops. How did you early on use hops and other ingredients to launch those first few products that really made a name for Dogfish Head? Yeah. And so, so you know, knowing that pale ales and IPAs were coming up when, when we were opening in the mid nineties, I was like trying to say, okay, well, we, we are, our rallying cry is off-centered ales for off-centered people. So we're not trying to do what's already out there. We're not like sort of the fast follower model. We'd rather pioneer creative styles, even if they, they crash and burn and there's not interest. At least we did something that's not out there. So I want to do something different with hop forward beers and American Northwest hops really generally provide more of a citrusy, fruity character to the beer, whereas traditional noble German English hops are more earthy characteristics. So leaning into that citrus concept, I did our, the first, what I think was the first packaged and distributed fruit-infused IPA called Apra Hop in, I think, 97. We have a book coming out called the Dogfish Head Book that chronologically tells the story of all the beers that we've ever released that comes out next month. And so it's cool to see how early we were launching these kinds of beers, even though when we launched them, people laughed at us or got pissed off at us saying, hey, asshole, you can't put fruit in IPA, which then allowed us to open that dialogue and say, well, actually, there's these natural chemical compounds in hops, myrcene, that throws a lot of the same characteristics of the natural compounds that are that are in apricots. So we're marrying these two similar organoleptic substances to kind of amplify uh, their awesomeness. And then a few years later, I built a vibrating football game uh, that allowed us to put a bucket duct tape to a vibrating football game over our boil kettle. And just by changing the angle of that contraption, we could vibrate pelletized hops down the football game into the boiling beer. So one pellet of hop was hitting the top of the boiling beer for a full 90 minutes. And that's how our concept of continual hopping was born. So even though 60 minute and 90 minute IPA from Dogfish 
don't have culinary ingredients. They uh, have that really unique technology. And in fact, that machine we invented is now uh, part of the permanent collection of the Smithsonian with the, you know, the Wright Brothers plane and the, and the Apollo rocket. So uh, not many other IPA breweries can say they got a piece of equipment in the Smithsonian and you can taste it when you try the IPAs. They're extremely beautifully hoppy, but they don't have crushing bitterness because we're so judicious and intentional with those little micro dosing of hops. Uh, on the on the hot side throughout a couple things mm-hmm. one i love that you dropped james beard and alice waters early on and 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 now we're talking about all these culinary ingredients and and these flavor accords with the the apricot and the and the uh similar substance in mm-hmm. the hops uh, i think mm-hmm. that's that that really shows that that you came at this with with a really good base in terms of you know like you, you had you had this this notion of culinary pairings going into to it. So I think that's important to note. And I, I want to talk about the 60, 90, 120 minute IPAs, which as you reference, it's, it refers to the, the number of minutes that you're dropping in this, you know, one pellet or one unit of hops per minute. Is the notion behind that, that by kind of spreading that out over time, you're going to get a more well-rounded hops profile instead of dumping them all in and then boiling for like 120 minutes, for example, and then sort of over extracting them. Is that the notion behind the 60, 90, 120 minutes? Or is there something else going on in the actual brewing process that generates that specific flavor? No, it's pretty much you nailed it as you described it. Because again, while it doesn't have culinary ingredients, it was actually inspired by a culinary moment. I was heating the water up to brew that morning and I was watching a chef's show on, on TV while the water boiled. I had my morning coffee and the chef was doing a, a live demo of making a soup. And he was like, Oh, I, I took this crushed black pepper and I'm just going to put pinches of in it the whole time the soup simmers. And that way the flavor of this pepper is going to be woven in with more complexity and more nuance than if I added the same weight of pepper all, all at once. And I was like, Holy shit, I can apply that same sort of sensory expectation to brewing. Cause traditionally in brewing, when you add, they, they do one big add addition of hops early in the boil for bitterness and then one big addition at the end of the boil for aroma. I said, what if I can do away with the concept of bittering hops and aroma hops and just dose equally throughout the entire boil? Could that lead to more nuance, complexity, subtlety, the way it did with the soup and, and it worked? Yeah, and and both pepper and hops have this dual nature where there's yes, there's the flavor, but there's also the bitterness and astringency. So you've got you've got the aroma and the flavor and if the longer you leave it in, you know, I make cocktail bitters and so there's yeah. always the risk of of uh, over extracting your ingredients and and getting not just bitterness but like an unwanted astringency. And so I, I think that's uh, just a wonderful and serendipitous way to kind of come across this notion of continual hopping or continual seasoning and then apply it to a space where that notion hadn't really been tested before. And the one thing that I've been most excited to speak with you about, to be completely honest, is the seemingly paradoxical idea of scaling creativity. To me, when I think of Dogfish Head as somebody who's been drinking Dogfish Head for the past 10 years of my life, I think of it as a brand where, you know, back 10 years ago when I would walk into the type of store that would sell Dogfish Head, which is generally a place that has a a grocery place that has a decent beer program, I would always be delighted when I would see a new release from you guys and they would be consistently there. And it, it's just to me, in addition to the off-centered ales for off-centered people kind of mantra, that continuous innovation and that at, and at scale has been something that to me really defines Dogfish Head. So, so I, I just want that to be hanging in the clouds as we as we have the rest of our conversation. But I, I figure I'd give you the chance to comment on that notion of innovation and, and yeah. how you scale it. No, yeah, I mean, so. I, with something we think of, I think about every time I drive up to my, you know, the parking lot at our brewery, you know, when Dogfish opened, I built a 12 gallon brewing system out of used kegs in the corner of a restaurant because I wanted people to see us come out of a commercial culinary kitchen and go in one direction with dishes of food and then the other direction with trays or buckets of brown sugar, pumpkin meat, pureed raisins, etc. to say, you know, beer's 
just liquid food and a brewer should have all the creative liberty of a, of a chef. And away we went and we grew from the smallest brewery in America to a top 20 craft brand, which meant, you know, coast to coast distribution. And as I drive in now, we've gone from 12 gallon fermentation tanks to uh, I guess they're about 300,000 gallon fermentation tanks now, you know, they're three or four stories high. And it's still surreal when I drive in by these tanks. But what warms my heart is not every single one of those tanks is filled with 60 minute IPA. There's sequent jails in one with sea salt, black limes, lime juice, slightly mighties in another with Chinese monk fruit in that pumpkin ales in another with uh, you know, real brown sugar and uh, fresh, you know, crushed allspice. And so I'm proud that we've been able to grow without compromising that creative, you know, uh, never sort of putting the, the, the tail of money in front of the, the dog of inspiration. But you're right. Once you're in national distribution, you've got to be more methodical and judicious with how many new recipes you try to drop with the retailers, consumers, and distributors. So a Trojan horse kind of function for us is really leaning into our art series, which is a quarterly series where pumpkin is the only constant. And then three other times a year, not only are we introducing a, a, a you know something cool, new recipe with culinary inspiration, but every year we're also partnering with a, a, a rock and roll artist who we love that maybe did gig posters or album covers for bands we love. And we're celebrating, you know, that, you know, beer, we really do think of Dogfish as sort of an art project first and a business second. And it, you can do that and still scale, but you just can't throw a, a zillion things at the wall and want them to stick back like you could back when customers were coming to you to buy the liquid and you controlled every moment of the storytelling, every moment of the distribution, which is a, an awesome luxury that small taproom oriented breweries still have. That's why that model is so successful. A, it's an awesome economic model, a brewery like Other Half or Tired Hands or Treehouse, they keep 100% of the pint sales or case sales when someone buys it from them, and they can offer as many as, as they want because they're telling the story direct to the consumer. But a brewery like Dogfish or Sierra New Belgium, 99% of what we make doesn't go through our own, our own wholly owned retail outlets. So we have to come with sort of polished and concise stories and a finite number of products because we have to rely on distributors and retailers to get them to market. But again, that doesn't mean that you have to dumb shit down. It just means you got to be more careful with what you're bringing and go deeper with fewer innovations, but still innovate. Yeah. I, I think we're going to return to this when we speak a little bit more about the acquisition with Boston Beer. But mm -hmm. uh, and I, I really love that you mentioned Treehouse because that uh, they started uh, only a few miles from where I grew up and, and they're a fascinating case study, but certainly a topic for another podcast. Mm -hmm. I visited your tap room, got to see the really cool treehouse outside that was transported from Burning Man. Mm -hmm. And and when I visited, this was at the time when there were giant wooden vats in there that were periodically scraped and used to create the Palo Santo and the Barton Baton. Yeah. Um, so this was a time when you were doing the experimental ales series, which of course featured, you know, some ancient recipes even. Are there, are there any of the beers from that time period when you were sort of transitioning from the small brew pub to more of a large craft brewery that are interesting case studies in the, I guess, the dogfish head ethos or the, the, the scaling of creativity like we were speaking about? Yeah, you know, I think one of the pivots that we had to make was recognizing that we wanted to still brew tons of different exotic beverages, but by and large, making beers more exotic means making them with more expensive ingredients. And, you know, in the first sort of era when craft beer really took off, which we were lucky to be there when it did, like 90s, certainly the pioneers in the 80s deserve the credit for getting the movement going, but volumetrically moving from sort of, you know, this niche community to the mainstream, that mostly happened in the in the mid 90s when brews like Dogfish and Stone and Russian River and were, were coming up. Um, and, and back then, there was also a recognition and celebration of those early craft adopters that craft beer could have all the 
diversity, complexity, food compatibility, and even ageability of world-class wine. So you saw a lot of that generation brewers, ourselves included, really leaning into beers that were more wine-like in their presentation and their alcohol by volume. We were selling them in 750 mil uh, bottles. And then I think a younger consumer in the last 10 years has taken a love for supporting local small breweries and kind of blended it with a, a newer sensibility where they're more interested in sessionability. They're looking more towards calories and carbs when they're making their drinking decisions, but they still want cool, flavorful beers. The challenge, though, becomes that there's definitely a calibration of alcohol by volume and pricing. So beers like Midas Touch, Palo Santo, while they definitely have a, an audience that loves them, selling them in distribution and volume is more challenging today than 10 years ago when people are looking more price conscious, more sessionability, lower calorie. So one of the pivots that we did is we've put in little canning lines here in coastal Delaware. For example, in about a month when we release our book, we're going to do a drop of our Indian brown ale, like one of the first sort of hybrid dark beers. It was really the first dark IPA that we started brewing in 97, I think. So now we've got the the dexterity to do these smaller drops locally without clogging up the shelves of our national distributors. And we can go deeper on art series and variety packs nationally that have Cracker Jack, you know, one-off beers or or hiatus beloved beers like our Festina Lente or Festina Pesce. Some of our earliest sours have been brought back for national distro. So we, we kind of can, can play, we can Jackson Pollock shit at the wall locally while we're kind of painting finely our Monets and Manets that we send out uh, nationally because we have these smaller packaging lines. So we COVID willing invite all of your listeners to come visit us in coastal Delaware because both the production brewery in Milton, the, the R&D distillery in Milton and the, the R&D brewery in Rehoboth always have offerings that you can only get in cans or in bottles if you come and visit us. Mm. What I really want to point out about that is what you're saying is with, with your, uh, with your artist comparison right there is that you almost have, it's almost like you've got a, a finite amount of beer. Imagine sort of like a pipeline of beer that, that you can make and you, you, you're shunting the majority of it off to the places where it's going to sell, where it's going to fund the operation. And then you've got this kind of separate stream that you point off in a different direction where you're able to do all the crazy experimental stuff. And I think that's a key point here for me in answering that question of how do you scale creativity, right? Scale seems antithetical to creativity. Well, mm -hmm. if you're smart about it and you plan an outlet for that creativity, where that creativity is not going to completely sidetrack what your operation needs to scale and thrive and survive, then you can still have that creativity and still allow those fun serendipitous discoveries to occur. But it's not happening at the expense of the operation at large, because if that were to happen, then you wouldn't have an operation. You wouldn't be able to innovate at all. So I think it's that that sort of bifurcation of the sales streams is, is a really key point to remember. And of course, it's also a great way to get people to visit. I mean, like you were you were talking about those days and those situations still today where uh, breweries have the opportunity to control the guest experience and control the narrative. I still remember those giant Palo Santo vats. Mm -hmm. It's a very important memory of mine. And then after that tour, we went and had this incredible tasting. And the person who did that tasting basically sat in front of me and my father-in-law, who's one of your biggest fans, mm -hmm. and spent like 20 minutes talking to us. It was a completely unscalable situation, yeah. but it was a situation that made me even more devoted to your brand. And, yeah. and a follower of, of the things that you launch. So I think it's a really interesting opportunity to, to hear from you from a big picture perspective, how that, how that works. And I, I wonder also if you might be able to talk a little bit about the role that your distilling efforts have kind of in the dogfish head ecosystem, because I remember going to the brew pub, getting the burger that was made from the cows fed with the spent grain <laughs> yeah. and, and then also being able to, to look at these stills. And this is before I think I had ever gone on a distillery tour. So while sitting there, I was like gazing at these, you know, the, the gin still with all the plates, I was like, Oh my God, this is so cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm going to dovetail. I'm going to go first up before we talk to the distilling thing. And I really liked what you said earlier about gin and the botanicals. So I want to touch on that. But uh, 
before that, you know, warms my heart to hear about the coworker that after the tour spent 20 minutes with you. And you're right, that part's not scalable, but it's critical. Like, for example, in about four hours, I'm going to be walking the three blocks from my house here in coastal Delaware in Lewis, Delaware, down to our, our, our Dogfish Inn, which is a harbor front beer-themed 17-room hotel, the first beer-themed hotel in America. And my and a bunch of our distributors are coming in from the country to have a vacation, but they're also going to do a tour like you did. We're going to sit around a fire pit tonight and do our fireside chat, which only, like Fight Club, it just has a couple rules. You, We talk about beverages for an hour and we have one conversation going so that everybody can participate. And they're truly my most meaningful meetings of the week, whether it's a midweek hang with a distributor or Saturday, I just go down there with a six pack and meet people that care enough about beer to plan a vacation at a beer themed hotel. And I get to see dogfish through the, through their eyes, what we're doing well, what they'd like to see us do more of, but more importantly, they get to hang out with my coworkers and go to our locations and hear for themselves without a hard sell of a TV ad or a banner over a beach or something on a, on a bus stop. It's just human scale conversations about sharing a passion for beverages and then if they if those stories resonate with those people they leave as you know as as evangelists for our brand and you're right we can't hit thousands and thousands of people every year that way but we can hit hundreds and hundreds and it's amazing how impactful i mean the fact that we're talking and you remembered those stories i bet you've turned other people on a dogfish so i know that 20 minute a co-worker spent with you you know, had an amazing ROI, even if we never think about it in the terms of ROI, it's just sharing that passion with people who care and are similarly passionate. So I saw an opportunity after we started the brewery to say, okay, well, we've brought this love of kind of uh, being rebellious with culinary ingredients into the world of beer. Why can't we do the same thing in the world of spirits? Because they're even harder lane definitions for a gin, a rum, a vodka, etc. Let's 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 screw with that the way we screwed with the definition of an IPA. And the launching part for me was, as you mentioned, gin because. Uh, a, you know, I used to, that was what I, you know, as a, as a Hemingway fan, if I'd go into a fancy bar, I'd say, give me the kind of gin tonic that would make Fitzgerald punch Hemingway in the face and see what a bartender would come up with for that. Uh, and we'll be releasing something like that as a canned cocktail very soon, by the way. Uh, oh, yeah. But, but, uh, but, you know, so it was the, being a lover of hops, 60 minute, 90 minute in the late 90s is made is what made me say, wait a second. These different hop varieties have so many of the characteristics of some of the key botanicals that are in gins, not just juniper, but certain peels, etc. Why don't I start lining up hop varieties that are perfect complements to you know certain types of juniper berries from certain places in the world? So we started doing our hop infused gin right when we opened 20 years ago and then we local apiaries for local honey into our rums and away we went on a sort of a culinary journey on the on the beverage side and and now you know we've our our, our canned cocktails that we just launched four months ago is the longest r&d project in the history of this company because we were making canned cocktails from our own spirits for 20 years uh before we even launched them uh but uh something we're really excited about is, is the distilling program both for the full foolproof spirits and the canned cocktails that's great. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. In what respect are you gonna be able to scale that in a similar way that you're scaling some of the, the beer offerings in light of the acquisition by Boston Beer, which we'll, we'll get to in, in just a moment? Yeah, so um, I would say we're being really 
judicious and thoughtful with the capacity we have currently in our distillery. And we feel that volumetrically our distributors and customers right now would be more excited to get our canned cocktails uh, than our gins, rums, vodkas, whiskeys. We just had a super cool visit from Ted who, who does the, the, the podcast or the, the video cast show for Whiskey Advocate and our Let's, Let's Get Lost Whiskey just got a 92 out, outstanding score from Whiskey Advocate. So, the, you know, we were basically saying, hey, we, we sell, we make this, we're super proud of our pure, you know, whiskeys, but they're, we're only going to sell them in four or five states because we believe if whiskey lovers love it, they'll come and find it. But we believe using more of our capacity of our still to do these really interesting culinary infused vodka based or gin based or whiskey based canned cocktails is where we want to spend more of our capacity energy, at least for the next uh, few years. And then we'll see where the marketplace goes. What I'm hearing you say is that the way to scale creativity is to think long and hard about impact. Seems like you can have different types of impact at different scales. The impact that that the tour guide had on me, his name was Andy and he was an English teacher. I remember that eight to nine years later, right? How ridiculous is that That's that awesome. I that I can still remember that? Awesome. So that that one-on-one micro level massive impact relative to you know, different types of impact at, at other scales. And, and, you know, you're saying right now correctly that RTD cocktails in cans are the, the trend of the moment. So, you know, if you want to have an impact in that space, you got to be there. So great. We're going to be there and we're going to be there a lot in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the impact of the spirits, you're saying that, you know, you've got the, you just got this outstanding score from whiskey advocate and, you know, you're going to try and, make that kind of work for you in the places where you already are to kind of drive more awareness there. Uh, to yeah. me, like that, that the different types of impact at different scales are, are really thoughtfully navigated. So I, I guess the next place I'd, I'd like to go is, is to tell you that as a fan of craft beer, I have watched with I guess we could call dismay, uh, concern, as all these small operations have been acquired by uh, big conglomerates, and in many cases, or most cases, international conglomerates uh, over the years. Uh, some some no- notable ones, Ballast Point, of course, you know, and 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 many others. And every time I see an acquisition announced, I sort of go, "Well, there goes that beer I liked." I remember I had a my wedding beer in 2015 was uh, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I am not a regular pale ale guy so much as an IPA, but that was one pale ale that I really loved. And uh, a couple years later, I ended up uh, seeing it at the at the liquor store and it's a seasonal release. And so I said, oh, wedding beer. Great. That'll bring back some some fun memories. And, mm-hmm. and I ended up drinking one and pouring five down the sink. Oh, and and so to me, that that sort of epitomizes my thoughts about acquisition of a small craft venture by a larger company. But when I saw the announcement that Boston Beer had acquired Dogfish Head, I thought to myself, wow, this is the first time I've seen an acquisition and gotten a warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, So can you talk about how that acquisition and or partnership came to be and, and what made it make sense to you? Yeah. And so as you mentioned, there is an era, you know, started probably six or seven years ago when craft beer really came into the mainstream where the world's biggest conglomerates, and as you mentioned, it's actually the international breweries, ABI, Molson Coors, Heineken, uh, that controls still over 75, over 80% of America's beer sales. So as ubiquitous as local craft beers seem, all the American breweries collectively, so the biggest two American-owned breweries are Boston Beer, our company, and Yingling, counting Boston Beer and Yingling and all the guys, the 9,000 that are smaller than us. Collectively, we have something like 14 or 15% market share in our country, in our home country. And so we, Mariah and I, grew Dogfish with our amazing coworkers for like 23, 24 years. But we started to see our industry changing, especially the top 30 sort of IRI, you know, retail defined craft beers. More and more were being bought by international conglomerates. Uh, and there was not a lot of transparency about those transitions that happened to consumer facing authenticity or transparency. And that was not a journey we wanted to go on. We got wooed by a number of 
big breweries and we told them, hey, our tour times are this time on these days. If you want to come for a tour, great, but we're not going to meet with you. But that said, you know, I was on the board of the Brewers Association, which is the trade group in America that re represents the vast majority of the 9,000 indie craft breweries. And I was the chairman of the board in an era as well when we defined what a craft brewery was because there were all these, you know, messages being shared and we wanted that clarity. We didn't define craft beer. We said that's up to the consumer to decide, but we've got a de definition of a craft brewery. And Jim Cook from Sam Adams was on that board with me. We were on that journey with Ken Grossman from Sierra, Kim Jordan from New Belgium, Gary Fish from Deschutes. And uh, it was really a meaningful time. And then Jim invited me to do the first ever American collaboration with Sam Adams. We did a beer called Savor Flowers, where I distilled rose water in my distillery. We kegged it up, brought it to Massachusetts, and we brewed this nice beer with edible flowers for the Savor Food and Beer Festival. And I remember calling my wife and be like, Mariah, I'm brewing at Sam Adams. These people, they're just like me. They're passionate. They, they're competitive. They're funny. They're just like us. And that kind of got the clicking in my mind. So when Mariah and I were like, all right, well, the top 30 set of what consumers think are craft breweries, a lot of them are really run now by international conglomerates. We want to provide opportunities for our coworkers to grow. So we need more resources and more scale but we want to stay within the definition of an American indie craft brewery. So that led to the conversations. And so Jim and I kind of looked at our, our, our portfolios along with the CEO, Dave Berwick, and, and saw not only were our cultures of our people really complementary, but our portfolio strengths were complementary, not competitive as well. So Boston Beer had the number one cider in America, Angry Orchard, number one craft lager with Boston Lager, number one RTD with Twisted Tea, number two, but fastest growing seltzer with Truly, whereas Dogfish was about these big IPAs, sour beers like Sea Quench Ale, distilled spirits that we knew were going to lead to canned cocktails. And we just saw that there were really these complementary spaces, whereas some of the other breweries that we maybe had one conversation with, it was too competitive, what we focused on. So very quickly, we decided there was just one company we wanted to do that with. And we didn't, it is really a merger more than an acquisition in that while Dogfish was way smaller, Mariah and I took no money in the deal. We just figured out, okay, here's the agreed upon value of Dogfish. We don't want any money. We just want stock in the company. And we're, you know, the second biggest non-institutional owners of the, of the company. And I'm on the board with Jim. I have the same title as Jim, but, you know, definitely Jim has more, more control and, and has voting stock. So it was a leap of faith for us, but it's rung true that our cultures are really aligned. And, you know, I had all the Sam Adams brewers up at, at Dogfish Head, Maine, where I have a one barrel home brewery. And we were kind of recreating early New England ales from, from the, from, you know, the, the, the hop varieties and grain varieties, the New England brewers were using in the late eighties, like Gary's and Harpoon, but we were using these new crisp, you know, uh, scientific lager yeasts. And so to have the Dogfish brewers with the Sam Adams brewers, you know, doing that just kind of re reaffirmed our faith that the journey we decide to, to do together is, is a, a, a fun and a righteous one. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense to me because before I even discovered Dogfish Head and had the various flavor epiphanies that your beers brought to me over the years, the first flavor epiphany I really had in the beer space was the first time I tried Sam Summer. Yeah. And I remember, yeah. I remember Sam on those commercials, you know, getting his hands in the hops and yeah. actually I meant to say Jim Cook right here. Too many Sams flying around in this interview. Apologies. And I just remember his voice. He has a very distinct voice saying grains of paradise. I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter that I don't know what these grains are. I want them in me, right? <laughs> I want to go to paradise. I want to go to paradise. Right. Later on, I learned what grains of paradise are and that they're, you know, these little pepper peppercorn type things. But that yeah. didn't matter at that point. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that that beer was the first I was like, oh, man, like beer doesn't have to taste like super malty. Like it can have like this this really uh, this really light character. And, and that was just an epiphany for me. Yeah. I, the other thing I will say is that is uh, I don't know if the choice to launch the slightly mighty and or maybe in a lesser way the sequench ale were were sort of a a precursor to the acquisition but as soon as i saw you guys come out with a light beer 
that actually tasted really good, like the the, the slightly mighty IPA. Yep. Uh, I was like, man, this is the kind of move that somebody does right before they they're about to kind of like merge and scale a little bit. Is, did those have anything to do with the partnership with Sam Adams or, or Boston Beer, or were those uh, already in the works? No, they were all they were already launched and and in market. You know, when we kind of you know concession pale IPAs were out there like Founders all days a nice really nice session beer my hats off to them growing the session market but we want to do something really different than session which was a, a locale ipa so we targeted uh mick ultra as the kind of quintessential low carb locale beer but we want to make ours we challenge ourselves let's make something that has the same exact calories as mick ultra but tastes like a full flavored ipa and so ours is 96 calories whereas founders i think is about 140 42 or something calories per 12 ounce. So that was already launched. Sequential was already launched with, you know, because that we launched in the 500th anniversary year of the Ryan Heitzka boat to kind of give a high five and the middle finger to that law that, <laughs> that law that inspired us. So with Sequential, we took these recognized German styles that were supposed to be really refreshing, a Kolsch, a Berliner, and a Goes, and then we mashed them up with our culinary ingredients, black limes and lime juice and sea salt. So those were launched. So the one that we did launch after the merger was Hazy O, similarly kind of in the active lifestyle wellness better for you space that slightly mighty sits in as locale and sequence sits in for refreshing. But with hazy O, the innovation was we were taking oat milk, which is, you know, certainly in the, in the barista and the coffee community recognized as this really beautiful flavor contributor, mouthfeel contributor, and bringing that for the first time into the hazy uh, IPA space. That one we only did launch, uh, you know, at the beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. And you had a fun ice cream collab on that, didn't you? Yeah, we did a vegan uh, ice cream where it was oat milk instead of cow's milk. And it is it, it, a 5% ABV version of an ice cream made with our Hazy O and with Elmhurst uh, oat milk. That's fantastic. I, I love that. Uh, so, Sam, we've covered a lot of ground here. We've covered some of the early days stuff, some of your inspirations and uh, some of the the notions and, I guess, the, the mission that drove the innovation of Dogfish Head and, and allowed you to scale in that sort of bifurcated way that we were speaking about earlier. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the, the kind of merger with Boston Beer and, and how that makes sense in a, in a world of acquisitions that just seem to be governed by uh, green paper and decimal points moving. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'd love for, to hear you talk about to wrap up the main portion of this interview is what the future holds for Sam and mm -hmm. for Dogfish Head. Sam, Sam you, not Sam Adams. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to keep doing fun collaborative projects with our brothers and sisters on the Sam Adams brand. Uh, we actually have the head cider maker from Angry Orchard coming down. We're going to do a, a beer cider hybrid here you know we're going to keep innovating both locally like fearlessly broadly locally and then we're going to try and get more of our innovations into the mid-atlantic not just delaware is something i'm really excited and there'll be more announcements uh coming up on that in the coming months and then trying to continue to find ways to get an impactful you know, dialogue with people who, who love dogfish or people we want to love dogfish, but in a way that's authentic to our brand. So we're not a brand that's going to spend our entire marketing budget on a on a TV ad campaign, you know, or billboards up and down the East Coast. we got a few billboards here locally, but trying to figure out how to scale our voice, both at events and at our own properties and in our digital universe where, you know, we do have over a million followers, making sure we're keeping that dialogue really vibrant and not hard sell just having that dialogue out there is something we're really you know intentional about so that energy will still go into a lot of energy will still go into that and and then just supporting our co-workers on their creative endeavors you know we got our food side of our business chesapeake and maine which is our seafood oriented where we source all the seafood direct from those two regions even though 90 percent of the seafood sold in america doesn't come from america so that's a labor of love a concept like that we're doing it brewings and eats we're really proud that we just opened our dogfish miami location and we've started embarked on this really cool partnership with the university of florida who's bringing forward all these experimental fruits that grow great in that tropical climate of southern 
Florida and how can we do some really cool stuff with 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 sour beers, fruited sour beers that possibly could scale nationally and be an economic boon to these farmers in, in Southern Florida. So those are a fun, a short list of fun projects that I'm excited to be involved in with, with my coworkers. Yeah. And on so many of those go back to what we were talking about impact. How do you scale creativity? You focus mm -hmm. on impact, the impact mm -hmm. that that experimental program is going to have potentially on some folks down in Florida who, who might be able to grow some of these things is uh, very impact driven. So, so I love that that always seems to be the motor that drives your creativity. And it, it's, it's really refreshing a la Sequench Ale to, uh, <laughs> to see that that is uh, something that, that remains important as you, uh, the as you that's the beer I'm drinking <laughs> while you said it. You, Eric, you gave me an excuse to drink at 1030 in the morning. So I thank you for that. Oh, anytime. That's that's what I'm here for. So before we jump into the lightning round, is there anything else that you want to make sure that you communicate with our listeners here? Uh, let's see. I mean, I'd say really proud that for many years going on a decade, we've been the official brewery brand of, of record store day. So our passion for live music, you know, we've had live music on our stages. We've collaborated with bands as diverse as the Flaming Lips, Pearl Jam, Grateful Dead. But I do want to just give a shout out to all of the lovers of, of music out there, both vinyl that support indie record stores, entrepreneurial record stores during the pandemic had a tough run, and those that support live music. We know we're in a you know tumultuous moment with challenges. I'm bummed today. We had to uh, postpone Yola Tango, one of my favorite bands, is going to play our room, but because of where COVID's going, we have to pause to do that show in the fall and hope to do it in the spring. So to all the fellow music lovers out there, I just want to say Dogfish is with you on that journey. And we know these are challenging times, but nothing sort of gives people more peace of mind than spending an hour on a walk or a paddle or a bike listening to great music during these challenging times. So if you're not drinking beer, uh, I encourage everyone to listen to music and ideally you're doing both at the same time. Amen. Amen to that. And uh, before we jump into the lightning round, I do have one thing that I was instructed to do that I that I will not get away with omitting from this, which is to uh, to send you a message from my father-in-law, Pete Murphy, who is up there in Avalon, New Jersey, not too far from where you are right now. Nice. And just uh, just a big thank you from him because his his cooler does not hit that boat unless it contains a slightly mighty or uh, dogfish 60. So he is one of your That's biggest awesome. fans. I may have, pa I may have p passed him on the Atlantic. My son, Sammy and I took our little motorboat from coastal Delaware up to Atlantic city on Friday to see fish play outside in the sand at Atlantic city. So I, I wasn't too far from Pete. So I was raising a sequence, I think, as I passed him raising a slightly. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Sam, uh, let's jump into the lightning round. Let's do it. Question one, what's your favorite non-beer alcoholic beverage? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something that maybe you've been obsessed with recently? Um, so uh, within our portfolio of non-beers, like I said, a gin and tonic, uh, a citrus Ford, you, you make your own bitters, Eric. So something with orange bitters, but a different fruit garnish uh, and with our, our compelling gin with, you know, our citrusy gin is probably my fave. Uh, also, if something we don't make, I'm still a sucker for an apple spritz in, in, in warmer weather. It might be the Italian uh, heritage in me, but uh, that's one of my, my favorite warmer weather drinks. What was the second part of that question? Oh, no, that you nailed it. You okay, nailed good, it. Good, good, good. good, good. Uh, this is this is a this is a question that I implemented post COVID with the notion that everybody needs a little bit more of those happy brain chemicals. So I'm trying to collect the happy brain chemicals from other people and share them with our listeners so that we can all enjoy these. But what's a small or idiosyncratic occurrence that always makes your day? Uh, it's that it's not small in time, but it's 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 something I do every day, which is I either get on my bike and go through Cape Henlopen State Park here, or on my paddleboard and paddle here on the on the Atlantic. And that one hour is probably my favorite hour of the day to just think creatively. I listen to music. I've unfortunately dropped five iPhones into the harbor here while I've been come up with an idea for a beer and come up and then I lose my phone. Uh, but it's been worth it over the 10 years, especially during the pandemic and keeping me sane. Our brewery has a saying of uh, mother nature, let's do this. And you kind of taste that love of mother nature in our, our beers. But taking that time to actually be in mother nature is probably a, a, one of the most meaningful parts of something I do every every day. Nice, nice. If you could have a beer, 
or a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. Hmm. It's got to just be one person. It can, it can be, it can be a group. You can break the rule. Okay. Uh, I'll do two dead and one alive. And uh, no, no, I'm going to do three dead. <laughs> Let's see. So it'd be probably Hemingway. No. Yeah. Well, Hemingway, Prince. And okay. who's the dude who wrote Infinite Jest? Who has three names. David Foster Wallace. Yeah. That would be a really fun one. It'd be weird because, you know, all of them had challenging ends to their lives. But, uh, <laughs> but three it's a literal of, suicide squad, man. <laughs> two out of three. Two out of three. Oh, geez. So, so I, mean, I don't know what that says about me, but. Um, but they influenced me greatly, you know, from sort of, you know, diff different paths and to see them and their voices, you know, over, uh, I would probably do it over uh, 60 minute, you know, 60 minute IPAs. And it's like our own version of the show 60 minute where I get to interview the, the three of the biggest creative influences on my life would uh, be a very meaningful hour. That's amazing. Uh, if you haven't already read it, check out uh, "Consider the Lobster" by David yeah, Foster Wallace. That's his short that's stories, and, and 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 one of them uh, takes place in a little a little town not far from Dogfish Head, Maine, where he's visiting this famous uh, lobster festival. I also recommend his first novel, "The Broom of the System," uh, is a really interesting sort of uh, take on capitalism, very different than sort of an Ayn Rand uh, take take on capitalism. So that's one I'd recommend as well. Absolutely. Uh, last question here. What is an unusual or controversial belief that you hold in the beverage or business world? And, and uh, let's, let's omit the, uh, the uh, middle finger to the Ryan Heights boat. Yeah. So it would be probably a message facing aspiring entrepreneurs would be when you're thinking of a business idea and writing a business plan or, you know, figuring out the economics of it, instead of figuring how big you could you could make it quickly and launch it figure out how small you could make it and and launch it too many startup entrepreneurs usually go in to their venture with too much debt and too much on their shoulders that can really stifle creativity when you're beholden to making you know bank payments every month or paying back a bunch of investors so if you're aspiring to be an entrepreneur figure out a way to bootstrap it uh, not just because then you don't have a lot of debt you know, monetarily, but you're not going to have as much debt mentally to, to drive your creativity if, if it's not, you know, overwhelming you with, with, with money challenges. Yeah, I think that's great advice and uh, doesn't make starting a brand any easier, but uh, necessarily, but it does eliminate, like you said, that, that a lot of the weights that can stifle creativity. So I think that's tremendous advice. I've had a tremendous time speaking with you here today, Sam. Can you just, as we wrap up here, tell folks the best ways to engage with you in the digital space, whether that's you personally or Dogfish Head? Yeah. So, you know, just look wherever you would for your, your, your favorite social channel for Dogfish Head. And then if you want a deep, deep information, go to Dogfish Head's YouTube page or dogfish.com. And if you go there, you can, you can go off on all these different adventures to book at our hotel or eat at one of our restaurants. Or we have this thing on there called the Fish Finder where you can enter your zip code and it'll tell you your favorite dogfish beers or canned cocktails what restaurants or stores in that zip code most recently bought them so that's a good way nationally to find the stuff that we make so those would be the places i'd, I'd send people amazing and uh just one more reminder we do have the dogfish head book coming out next month correct yeah the pub date i think now is officially september 28th and uh props to my co-authors my wife mariah uh, Andrew, who runs our hotel, co-authored it, and Paul Fens, our, our creative lead designer, uh, designed it. And uh, we're just really excited because visually and in the stories of our coworkers and all of our voices, we tell that sort of 26-year journey that we're so proud so many beer, beer, spirit, food lovers have joined us on. Sam, I will let you go and enjoy the rest of your day before your fireside chat. But uh, I just wanted to thank you so much for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Time flew, Eric. So thank you for inviting me to do this. And our time was almost exactly 60 minutes, which reminds me is what I'm going to have after the sequential. <laughs> cheers. All right, Eric. Cheers. Thank you. Hey, 
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Craft beer and business insights courtesy of Sam Calagione and Dogfish Head Brewery. And a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production copyright 2021.